This is the Freestyle Way. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Freestyle Way podcast. Today, I'm coming at you with my eyes dilated. <laughs> so <laughs> for those of you watching the video format of this, uh, just know that I'm looking at the screen, but I can't really see it. It's just blurry. And uh, I have some notes here that I wrote this morning, but I can't see them either. So I'm going no notes and I can't really see the screen. So if it looks a little dark or a little funny or blurry, it's just because I couldn't get the settings right. But hopefully the audio is good enough that this is worth your time. And specifically today, I'm doing another solo episode. And in today's episode, I wanted to share a little bit about how I coach. And this is a little bit of a follow-up from last week where, by the way, everybody who uh, took the time to listen and reach out afterwards, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And I'm glad that the message and uh, some of that which I shared resonated with you. It just means a lot to be uh, seen and supported. Okay, so in this in this episode today, I wanted to talk about how I coach and... Um, I want to share a couple of tools that I have shared in the past through my seminars and through my book and just give you a general idea of how I look at not only coaching somebody through movement or physical practice, but also through life, which is what I spend most of my time doing these days. I do lifestyle performance coaching. And I thought I would start with uh, just reminding everybody who uh, knows my story and who listened to uh, last week's episode that my upbringing in the world of sport was in artistic gymnastics. And I got a chance to start teaching a little bit of that sport when I was 14, specifically to a few young kids within this feeder program that was uh, happening within our gym. And uh, I just remember vividly coaching a kid on how to do a front handspring, which is basically like a front flip using your hands uh, on the ground. And realizing that I had the capacity to instruct somebody on how to do something. And that the act of instructing somebody on how to do something uh, felt really good. And although I, I was young and I was still training and competing. I wasn't really concerned about coaching. It's something that planted a seed that later on in 2004 would really come to the forefront. And that's when I transitioned from uh, the world of environmental science to coaching gymnastics and eventually fitness and CrossFit. And I remember when I got into coaching gymnastics, one of the things that happened early on was that I started coaching as if I was trying to get somebody within the realm of gymnastics to compete in the sport and thus to win. And in order to do that, having to follow a code that uh, basically determined how much value there was in each movement you did and how you put it together within a routine and uh, that giving you a competitive advantage against the people that you were up against and thus potentially leading you to the top of the podium and being able to say, you are the best gymnast in the world, or at least in uh, the uh, vicinity or context of the competition that, that they were competing in. And because the gym that I was at in 2004 was not a competitive gymnastics gym, it was a recreational gym, that kind of went out the window. 
It went out the door. I didn't have to worry about the code. I just had to worry about the movements. Furthermore, the kids that I were was coaching didn't really care about the code. <laughs> they didn't care about uh, the value of a movement. They just cared about practicing the movement, learning how to perform the movement. They just wanted to have fun. It was a rec program. And this required me to really shift my mindset, the way that I looked at things. And what I learned in that moment was that the kids were the boss. I was there to support the boss, the person who was uh, developing something through my skill set. And if I could embody that role, if I could be the person assisting the gymnast in this case in achieving uh, their goals, which was to bring their vision into a material world, I'm quoting Madonna now, uh, <laughs> then, then I would be successful as a coach. And I just remember that being something that was very empowering and that started uh, producing results at a higher rate, at a higher speed. And I really enjoyed that feeling. And I know that the kids that I was working with enjoyed that feeling too. And something that is a good indicator of it is that I still have relationships with those kids 15, 16, 17, 18 years later. And uh, that's, uh, that's pretty, pretty cool to, to look back and see that thanks to that moment, that shift in mindset and realizing what it meant to be a coach could do for um, a personal relationship. So that's kind of how I started coaching. That's how I really started focusing on coaching. And what happened was that when I was coaching gymnastics at a recreational level, I also started to coach tumbling and trampoline, which are not artistic gymnastics, but are within the same category of sports, so to speak, acrobatics. I also got to not only focus on kids, but on all ages. And something that was really empowering for me was working with adults who had no gymnastics experience, but who simply wanted to move better and they wanted to use gymnastics as a vehicle for doing that. And moving better being uh, feeling more free, being stronger, being more capable, unlocking new movement patterns, and that being the the outcome that they were seeking. And to be a guide for people in that world was very special to me. In addition to that, what I started to focus on was on the strength and conditioning portion of the practice. And the reason was because everybody who was then, how old I am now, 40, needed to have a robust foundation to be able to practice the elements of gymnastics that I was teaching that required a level of strength, flexibility, and uh, just uh, fundamental body awareness, meaning positional strength. And this is something that you do in gymnastics. You, you shape the body to uh, prep it for whatever movement patterns you're going to try to unlock in your practice. And on top of that, I was also working with athletes that were considered freestyle athletes, so skiers and snowboarders. And something that was very interesting there was that the freestyle skier or the snowboarder 
they were looking for techniques that were similar to the ones practiced in gymnastics, but not the same. And this required me to let go even more of the methodology, methodology of artistic gymnastics and let go even more of the code uh, of points that gymnastics had in place to assist people in uh, constructing a better practice so that they could compete at a higher level. And the letting go of a methodology, a technique, is something that could only be done if I, as a, as a coach, was willing to allow the body to come first and the technique to come second. What does that mean? What, what does that mean? Well, that means that I had to allow the body to move and to tell us, tell me where it was and where it wanted to go and then utilize that movement to create something new or to create the thing that maybe the athlete had envisioned. In other words, to utilize what is already available to you, the body's, for the lack of better words, natural, instinctual ability to move, way to move, and then utilize that to mold it to fit a vision, to fit an outcome. And for this to happen, I had to do four things. Number one, I had to observe the body in motion. And in observing the body in motion, noticing, and this is where, if you want to take notes, you can start taking notes now because this is where it starts really ramping up. In the observation, noticing that there were some master positions, and these master positions being the different shapes that the body would go through while performing a certain movement pattern. When identifying these shapes that the body went through, then noticing that there were things happening globally, meaning in the totality of the body, what shape in general was the body in while moving or transitioning out of these uh, positions while in a specific movement pattern? And then what was happening locally, meaning at joint level, shoulders, elbows, wrists, hips, knees, ankles, etc. Furthermore, realizing where the primary movers were and where the secondary movers were. The primary movers, for example, if you're doing a handstand push-up, would be your shoulders or your upper body. The secondary movers would be your uh, lower body. If you're doing a strict handstand push-up, one where the legs are straight, the secondary movers are not really moving. They're just holding a position, meaning the hips would be in a neutral shape, legs would be extended, maybe toes would be pointed. But if you're doing a kipping handstand push-up, now the secondary movers would be the hips, the knees, and the elbows, although the main power generation comes from there, uh, the base of support being uh, where the hands are and there being the primary movers. And being able to observe this from this multi-level uh, perspective, uh, giving me and anybody who is a coach, an observer, a clear an objective um, idea of where the current state of evolution or movement was at. That was the observation part. The second part that was fundamental to coaching beyond a methodology was the description 
or reflection of that which was observed, meaning being able to explain to somebody, express to somebody what has just happened, what the movement looked like, what was just uh, expressed uh, in the athlete's performance. And being able to do this from this hierarchy that I just expressed a second ago, which was from a place of noticing the different master positions that the body went through, uh, what was happening globally, what was happening locally, and what was happening at the primary mover level and then at, a, at the secondary mover level. And when being able to communicate in this way, what I was doing and anybody who's a coach does, whether they're aware of this or not, is giving the athlete a picture of who they are from the eye of the observer. And this uh, allowing the athlete to gain uh, a new level of awareness, body awareness, spatial awareness, movement awareness. And then after the reflection had happened, then the third part of coaching comes in, which is the application. And this is where you take that which you have observed, that which you have reflected back to the athlete, and now you make a suggestion on how to uh, change or reinforce an aspect of the movement pattern that is going to produce a better outcome, a more optimal outcome. And this is where the artistry of coaching comes into play because it's not always that clear. It's not always that obvious. And although I believe coaching is 50% engineering and 50% artistry, the artistry is where the personal relationship is developed and where the true mastery of the craft of coaching comes into play. And what happens is that most of the times, especially in the early stages of one's coaching career, is that when you are giving people a cue, uh, you are giving them uh, some information uh, or you're suggesting them change something within their movement pattern, most of the times it doesn't work. <laughs> your suggestion fails. And that's where the reassessment has to come into play. So you do a new observation, new reflection or description, and then you change how you want to apply your observation and your reflection in regards to the outcome that you want to produce. And this is where the adaptation comes into play. And this is what you could call scaling. And scaling or adapting something can be uh, when you are now uh, moving slower. You're addressing speed. Uh, you are doing it with less load if you're lifting uh, a barbell, for example. Or you're going to cover less distance if this has to do with uh, covering some kind of uh, space. Let's say you're doing a long jump, etc. And this adaptation being the iterative process that you have to go through as a coach and moreover the person you're working with 
is has is uh, uh, has to be willing to participate in, and this is where the pain <laughs> really starts to uh, come into to play because this is where the discipline and the commitment of the person that you're working with really starts to shine. And something that I I utilize a lot is this idea of meeting people where they are, and specifically doing this by looking at the person that I'm working with from three different vantage points, from the child perspective, from the teenage perspective, and from the adult perspective. Meaning, noticing where the athlete, the person that I'm working with, is in within their development. If somebody's coming in for the first time ever to do gymnastics, it doesn't matter how old they are. They can be 50. I'm going to treat them as a child, not necessarily in our personal relationship, but in our movement relationship. In other words, I'm going to guide them step by step. I'm going to hold their hand. I'm going to practically do it with them. I'm going to be their chaperone. Then you have the teenagers. The teenagers are the ones who have already experienced a practice to a degree where they're capable of doing it on their own. And the teenagers are in an exploratory phase of their development. And usually the teenager doesn't want to have anything to do with the adult. <laughs> they, they want to be independent. And knowing how to coach a teenager is really powerful. And it's actually very simple. It comes down to learning how to hold space for the experience exploratory process that the teenager is going through. And this is where minimal guidance leads to maximal outcomes. Now, is it going to be painful to watch? Yes, it is. Is there going to be a lot of uh, frustration and elevated emotions? Is it going to be a roller coaster? Yes, it is. But eventually, if you continue to hold space for the teenage athlete or the person who is in development and is in a teenage stage of development, eventually they will transition into becoming adults. And the adults are the ones that come to you, the coach, and are ready for a collaborative relationship. A relationship where both parties, coach and athlete, are working together to achieve the outcome that is desired. And this is something very unique and something very special and where one's social skills, soft skills come into play. One's emotional intelligence comes into play as a coach. And this is something that, as many of you know, I have spent most of my time focusing on for the last five, six years. Now, Within coaching, in addition to the observation, description, application, and adaptation, I personally created a language or a framework for talking about how the body moves and how we as observers, as uh, artists around uh, developing movement, can better assist the body in adapting into whatever the desired outcome is. And the framework that I created at the highest level was position, movement, purpose, the PMP framework. And I created this little framework, which I talk about in my book, Freestyle, in part one. 
I created this in the car as I was heading to um, TJ's gym in San Rafael, Marin County, probably in 2009 to teach a little workshop and feeling like I needed something to share on the whiteboard before getting into the practical part of the workshop in order to give them a place to anchor the ideas, the principles and values that I was about to share. So I just said, position, movement, purpose. This is important to me. And anyways, that led to a whole process of um, exploration through this lens of position and movement and purpose that um, ended up becoming the foundation of everything that I do as a coach. And I'm going to try to explain how by breaking down this framework. Now, the first part of this framework is position. Now, what is what is position? Position is simply your body shape in space. So imagine your body floating in space, performing a movement pattern. Whatever shapes you go through as you're moving, those are your positions. Now, although you could break down a movement into almost an infinite number of positions, just like I alluded to earlier, when you observe movement, we naturally see the transitions. Our brain is wired to capture the transitions. And these transitions are part of what create the master positions. And movements tend to have few master positions, and those are one big transition movement, and then you have a start and a finish. So start, transition, finish are your master positions. Starting, that's where you start a movement. Let's say you're going to do a squat. That's your stance. You're just standing up. The squat, which would be where your hips are in flexion, knees are in flexion, and ankles are in dorsiflexion, which simply means that you are bending your ankles, knees, and hips and allowing your hips and center mass to come down as low as you can or as close as you can to the ground. That would be your transition position, the squat position. And then once you stand up and you finish in a standing position, that would be your finish position. By having a start, a transition, a finish, now you have a blueprint or some scaffolding for what is in between. And what is in between these master positions is the movement itself. And therefore, you have position and movement. Now, the movement, as I just addressed, is how you change body shape, change body position as you move from one master position to the next. And something that we're looking for in movement is we're looking for movement to be effective, meaning that it has uh, proper application of force. It follows a line that is um, uh, it producing the outcome that you want to see. In addition to that, we also want it to be efficient, meaning that uh, the energy expenditure is optimized. And this is something that now leads to uh, the physiology of physical adaptation. But regardless of that, by simply looking at the movement from a positional perspective, meaning a change in shape in space, it makes things very simple. And this is what I refer to as movement-based coaching. And when you have the lens of the movement-based coach and you can see a position, you can see the master positions and you can see the movement in between them, now you can add on purpose. And purpose being the intention for performing a movement. 
and the intention for performing a movement giving one context and the context being able to take a movement pattern that may be general in nature, and I'm going to explain what I mean by this, and making it specific. So, for example, I could do a, a backflip. And doing a backflip would be starting position, standing, jump, flip, go upside down. That's your transition position. And then land on the ground. That's a backflip. That is a general movement pattern, backflip. Now, if I took the backflip and I added purpose to it, and specifically I added the purpose of learning how to uh, practice or pursue the artistic gymnastics way, now the way that I perform the standing backflip would be uh, slightly different than just performing a backflip for the sake of doing it. And why is this? Well, because one of the things that we're trying to do when pursuing a craft is getting into a place of mastery. And mastery not being a destination, but rather a path that is um, ever growing, ever progressing. In other words, that lives in a state of adaptation that is infinite. And specifically infinite to meet the requirements of the rules and standards set by a sport. Thus, the nuances or the little um, uh, details of a movement pattern, such as a standing backflip applied to artistic gymnastics, will be very specific. My hands will be in a certain position. My arms will be in a certain position. I'll be trying to point my toes. Uh, I'll be trying to keep my legs together. Uh, there will be a certain style to it. But now let's say you're just doing a backflip for the sake of showing off or because it, you think it's fun and you want to do it in, on the grass uh, with your friends as a, a party trick or a celebratory thing. Now, the technique doesn't have to be that polished. It can be a little bit more unique to the user. The arms can be bent. The fingers can be splayed. The toes don't have to be pointed. Maybe you're, you're grabbing your knees in a way where your legs are out to the sides. You're basically doing like a, a cowboy style uh, backflip. That is a different type of movement pattern and all determined by the specific purpose of the movement. Thus, position gives you the blueprint, the foundation. The movement is how you move through that foundation. And the purpose is that which makes it specific, that which molds it. When you can see movement from this perspective, what you are able to do is you're able to separate yourself from a methodology, from a technique. In other words, you become less dogmatic. You become less uh, projecting in your beliefs and that which you think is right, and you allow the body, the performer, the athlete to tell you what is right. And this is very empowering, especially if you are a person who is working with athletes who express themselves in different realms, a snowboarder, a wakeboarder, board sports, but different, a wakeboarder, a skateboarder, different a skateboarder, a longboarder, different. A longboarder, a surfer, different. Board sports, but different. Being able to separate yourself from the methodology, the technique, that which is dogmatic within uh, a specific 
way of practicing that is key, in my opinion, for being able to coach people through uh, a movement-based um, practice. Now, something that is key here is that movement, when you think about it um, in relationship to its purpose, it becomes functional, meaning that it serves a purpose. And this idea of a movement being functional comes associated with a few characteristics. And those characteristics are that, number one, the movement is safe. How so? Well, any movement that is functional, one that is, allows you to perform it uh, with purpose, comes with a positive outcome meaning comes with the, uh, the intention of being successful in the performance of that movement. Thus, it is safe in nature, unless you're doing something that you want to see end up in an injury, uh, which would be crazy, but maybe you're somebody who wants to get hurt <laughs> flipping around. I don't know. If you are, then I think uh, you should uh, not see a coach, but maybe... Um, a counselor. <laughs> but but you can see how when you move with purpose, you are always producing something that is safe. Now, the second thing is that functional movement, a movement that is functional, is also useful. It has utility. It serves the purpose. The, the, the word itself uh, explains it, is that it allows you to meet a certain standard. And then finally, something that is fundamental to functional movement is that it is long-lasting. In other words, that it has longevity. And this is where having a movement-based practice allows you to perform at the highest level. Let's say you are a gymnast and you compete at the Olympics, retire from gymnastics, and still be able to practice gymnastics without pursuing the highest level elements, but still practicing shapes, positions, movements that are similar to those high-level ones without the um, required stress or foundation uh, needed to arrive at those elite levels of practice and still being able to get something out of it and to do this for as long as you are alive or as long as you care about practicing gymnastics. And this applies to any sport. And when you have a movement-based practice, what ends up happening is that the functional movement is not only one that is useful and safe, but it's also something that allows you to practice for the rest of your life. And that is really powerful. When you know this as a coach, as an athlete, there's a certain sense of calm that comes with the pursuit of development itself. Because there's no longer a deadline, there is more an interest in adapting to a process. And this is what gets you to a place where the results that you're seeking, the outcomes that you're seeking, are actually the byproduct of you adhering to a process. And in the process of adhering to a process... <laughs> Uh, creating a progression and that progression producing the results. And that's that's the beauty of this. So when looking at movement from the framework of position, movement, purpose, 
and noticing that movement is functional, now you can start to think about what are the physiological aspects of our uh, practice that need to be developed and how can we develop those. Now, a good way to address this or a simple way to address this is by thinking about your movement from first, a global perspective, what is happening from head to toes, and simply noticing the different shapes the body can get into. Extension, flexion, lateral flexion and extension, rotation, combinations of all of those. And from a general perspective, noticing how the global movements in relationship to the environment that we're moving in, which is on planet Earth, does three things. Number one, there's a shift. There's a shift of the center of mass in relationship to the base support. So for example, if you are walking, running, the first thing you do in order to start walking is you shift your center of mass in relationship to your base support. That displacement of your center of mass in relationship to your base support causes movement. And then the second thing happens, which is there's a change in connection, specifically points of contact. You pick up one fit, foot, you pick up a foot, place it in the next uh, position that it needs to be in, meaning in front of you. And now you continue to shift your center of mass. And by changing points of contact, now you're taking steps and now you're walking. So these are general truths that happen at a global level. In addition to the connection, the change in connection or the points of contact, now you have flow. So you have shift, connect, and then you have flow. And what is flow? The flow is the fluidity, the efficiency, the effectiveness in which you can transition from one position to the next. And this state of flow in movement is one that usually relates to a high level performer. And being able to find flow at every level of your practice is key. Thus, when you are coaching, when I am coaching, something that we should be seeking is a state of flow of in movement. And that being something that could um, approximate what we could call virtuosity, being virtuous in our uh, movement expression. Now, in addition to what is happening globally, we can look at what's happening locally. So shoulders, elbows, wrists, hips, knees, ankles, and realize that the body goes through a series of adaptations that when looked at from the joint perspective, the local perspective, follows a pattern that starts simply, becomes more complex, and then ends up becoming simple again. An example of this is think about uh, developing a, a, a very simple movement pattern, such as a push-up. Maybe before you even do a push-up, you are warming up your shoulders. So simply swinging your arms into flexion and extension, which is just lifting your arm in front of you and bringing your arm down, that is performing the motion of a push-up without producing what we would call technically the movement pattern, which is the push-up itself. That simplicity now can go from a straight arm swinging into flexion extension and now transition into not only swinging the arm into flexion extension, but adding an elbow bend. So now as my shoulder goes into extension, which is a backswing, the elbow is going into flexion. And now it's starting to mimic something that looks 
like pushing. And this starting to look more like a push-up. Now, because this is a little silly when you look at this uh, from this uh, vantage point, this is why having a movement-based practice is so interesting because now you can say, okay, uh, we're just moving your shoulder, your elbow. How can we now apply this to something that looks like a movement that is recognizable or that has uh, been developed. And we can talk about how movements are developed too in a second. Um, and and thus saying, okay, let's take this movement that you have been developing, developing simply from a shoulder perspective, from an elbow perspective, and let's apply it. And that being a level of complexity now that uh, allows you to start to unfold, unravel, uh, get stronger, whatever you want to call this, develop. If you pursue, let's say you want to be a master uh, practitioner at push-ups, which is a silly thing to say, but I'm just using it as an example. Eventually, you're going to have to simplify the movement pattern again to create um, a support system that is going to allow you to do more push-ups. In other words, some accessory work. And this accessory work could be as simple as now going back to where you started, swinging your arm, but with a dumbbell in your hand, and that being just a simple shoulder raise. Maybe it's performing a curl and elbow extension. And now developing the musculature and the specific joints locally that when applied to the complex movement pattern, which was the push-up, being able to make it more robust, more resilient, more adaptive, able to grow in whatever direction that you have chosen to grow the mastery of your push-up. Now, I know that's a silly example, but hopefully that sheds some light on how to look at the body movement from a local vantage point. Now, something that I like to say is that when I look at the body from a global perspective, I'm looking at skill. When I'm looking at the body from uh, a local perspective, I'm looking at strength. And I uh, define strength as the capacity to move. In other words, your capacity to get into certain positions. I always um, ask people, how strong do you need to be to perform a pistol squat, like a single leg squat? Or how strong do you need to be to squat uh, 200 pounds? Well, strong enough. You just have to have the range of motion, the positional strength to be able to support that uh, body or that uh, movement pattern. But it can't really be measured in a universal way. Everybody is going to have a slightly different metric. And of course, this can be debated in, in many different ways, but hopefully that makes sense to you. You just have to be strong enough. Now, what is interesting is skill. Skill is your ability to apply strength, meaning it's your ability to perform a movement pattern in a way that is effective, efficient, and allows you to have a positive outcome. And this is where the strength is something that is more organic in nature, meaning we can train it, we can stress test it. And skill is something that requires repetition so that you can uh, create a neuromuscular pattern that allows the body to be uh, not only familiar with the movement pattern, but be able to do it without you having to consciously think about it. Something that becomes almost reflexive in nature. And for what that's worth, when you can look at the body from a local perspective and a global perspective, the sum of what's happening locally and what's happening globally produces a specific style of movement.
So for example, let's say you have a pull-up and you're performing the pull-up in a strict fashion. Now, at a local level, there's shoulders, elbows moving, but globally, you're just going up and down and your body shape is in neutral, meaning from head to toes, there's no movement. That produces a style of pull-up that we could call strict pull-up. Now, let's say we took the global shape and we added a swing, a kip, moving from extension to flexion. That swing going from extension to flexion coupled with the earlier on strict pull-up, the movement pattern that we saw at local level, which was just pulling yourself up over the bar and down, now produces a new style. And that style being a kipping pull-up. Now imagine you added more local movements during that kipping pull-up at the hip and knee level, meaning like a little frog kick. Maybe now you have like an original CrossFit kipping pull-up. Maybe now you take one of the uh, swings away and you make it, make it an elliptical shape that turns into a butterfly pull-up. Maybe now you add some more range of motion at a local level and you do a chest to bar. Maybe you add even more range of motion and you get it to your hips. And then maybe now you add even more range of motion locally and you turn it into a muscle-up, a bar muscle-up. So if you follow, by being able to observe what's happening locally and what's happening globally, you're producing different styles. But by adding different ranges movements to the local and global aspects of the body, it now can also produce a progression. And that progression can be, uh, by using this example, going from a strict dead hang pull-up to a bar muscle-up. And if we want to use the, the idea of uh, simple complex simple that I was sharing earlier with the arm swing into the push-up and back into the uh, accessory work, which was uh, doing the arm swing, but now with uh, a dumbbell, you can think about uh, a muscle-up, for example. A muscle-up may start in a very simple fashion, performing strict pull-ups, then become complex and doing kipping muscle-ups, which is more accessible, and then eventually becoming a strict muscle muscle up, which is a, a higher display of strength and uh, maybe mastery of uh, the movement pattern itself. And that being something very interesting. And when you can see the combined styles that the different combinations of local and global movements produce, now you have what I call freestyle. And freestyle being this wide array of movement patterns that allow you to choose your own adventure. And there, uh, not being bound by a methodology or uh, a way of doing things that is, um, um, I don't know what the word would be, but that would carry the, the, the constraints that would actually limit your ability to express yourself. In other words, it makes you limitless. And that is the position movement purpose uh, framework. Now, what's interesting about this is that this, although it sounds kind of philosophical, does have an application. And the application is simply your ability to process information. And what I found is that because this is kind of complex and it's kind of convoluted, and especially because I'm uh, sharing it in this form, maybe you're listening to it now and thinking, what the heck is he talking about? Uh, there are ways of pursuing this um, framework in a way that is highly practical. And one way that I found was by working with what I called blocking movement. 
and blocking movement being able to take any movement pattern, applying an anatomical shape to that movement, and noticing how the movement organically, naturally adapted to uh, the, 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 the rules set by the anatomical position. And the anatomical position is simply, uh, if you, if you were to open any anatomy book, you'll see, um, uh, your body and, and the person who is, uh, or the body that you're seeing, they would be standing with their feet together, legs straight, uh, arms by their sides, palms facing forward and nice and neutral. If you took that anatomical position and without changing much to it and you applied it to any movement to a squat to a deadlift to a push-up you would produce um outcomes movement outcomes movement patterns that were uh, more effective more efficient and more transferable in their skill set and what does this mean this means that by developing the movement pattern that the blocking movement um technique, so to call it, uh, uh, produces, allows you to create a, a better progression of movement from uh, doing a push-up to a handstand push-up to uh, anything else that you can uh, come up with. And this is something that I'm, I'm happy to dive into uh, with more detail, but you can also read about this in my book. It's blocking movement. And then finally, this is now kind of coming back to a higher level, realizing that when we think about movement-based coaching, that there have to be some standards. The question is, what standards are we going to meet and what standards are we going to follow? The first one, in my opinion, is a biomechanical one, one that is, uh, has to do with how the body is designed to move. And realizing that there are ways in which the body can move that produces better outcomes. And those better outcomes are usually safe, useful, and long-lasting, as we talked about. In other words, they're functional. And they give you a competitive advantage. They allow you to not only be more efficient and effective, but come out on top if you were to compare yourself to other uh, athletes or competitors in a certain field. So that's one thing. The mechanics comes comes uh, first when we try to meet meet these standards. And the mechanics are simply looking at the body. And looking at the body is something that is movement-based. Now, in addition to that, it's noticing the sports and games that have existed up until this point. In other words, realizing that each sport, each game, everything that we play, so to speak, comes with a set of rules and standards, ways of doing things. If the way that you're moving at a high mechanical uh, level, meaning being um, biomechanically efficient and effective, matches the rules and standards of a sport, then you are operating on par. You are actually uh, performing at a high level. But then there's a final element here that I think is very important and that often gets pushed back and away, which is the aesthetics. It's how does it look? Does what you are doing look good? If it's aesthetically appealing, what's exciting about this is that we feel attracted to it. And a lot of times when something is aesthetically appealing in nature, 
It's also very robust in nature. It's also very competent in nature. And this is where you see these amazing athletes that are not only uh, producing results, winning competitions, winning events, but they also look a certain way doing this. And that certain way being one that is aesthetically appealing. We, our brain, we are, um, we are programmed to be attracted to an aesthetic. And something that is interesting is that if you are practicing in a way that is mechanically sound, matches the rules and standards of a sport or a game, but is not aesthetically appealing, then most likely you're not expressing yourself in your own unique way. Now, on the flip side, if you're expressing yourself aesthetically beautiful, like just at a level that's like, I've never seen anything like that before and mechanically sound, but the way that you're expressing yourself doesn't match or meet the standards of other games with their rules, then you're potentially creating a new lane. And that is beautiful. That is very cool. And this is where being aware of the progressions or the nature of progressions uh, comes into play, where we have natural progressions, formal progressions, and creative progressions. Now, natural progressions is simply what happens when you uh, put somebody in a situation or you just have them uh, practice something without any direction. That is a natural progression. The body naturally adapts mechanically adapts that it may come with some faults or whatever uh, but it, it it's just a natural adaptation the the formal progression is the one that is taught the one that follows some guidelines and usually the formal progression comes from a place where somebody else has practiced it before has uh, uh, gone through the failures learned the lessons and now can fast track you to where you want to go and this is what coaching is all about it's formal progressions but in in coaching, it's important that we allow space for the natural progression to occur, meaning that we allow the person that we're working with to simply express themselves naturally and to use the formal progression that exists, meaning the knowledge that we have, the information that we have, in a way that guides the natural progression. When one can do that, then what we are doing is we're allowing the unique essence, so to speak, of an athlete to express itself at the highest level. In other words, for the strengths of those athletes to express themselves at a higher level and for the weaknesses when found to not be crippling, but rather um, complementary to the practice. And here being able to say, I'm going to work on my weakness by using my strength and thus uh, becoming even stronger in nature. Furthermore, the third level of uh, progression is the creative progression. And the creative progression is now when you realize that there are other ways that you can express yourself that work better for you, the individual. And now you start to create your own unique style. And realizing that these three progressions, the natural progression, the formal progression, and the creative progression are actually not a spectrum that is linear. It's actually circular where the natural progression and the creative progression meet. And it's a circle that you go through. This is kind of like the hermeneutic circle uh, in writing when you're trying to take a body of text and you're trying to analyze it, synthesize it, and bring it back to a new uh, level of understanding. This is 
the same thing with movement. You go through uh, these three different types of progression. A natural progression, you express yourself. A form of progression, you follow a guideline that's more like experimentation. And then you integrate, meaning you, you make it uh, part of you who you are. And then you get into the creative progression, and that's the transcendence. You elevate yourself, and you keep climbing the spiral ladder. You keep iterating through these different progressions over and over again, and that putting you in a state of infinite practice. As a coach, I am always thinking about all of these things as I'm communicating with the people that I, I work with. Now, this is where it gets really interesting for me, is that I've sat here now and babbled, rambled for 52 minutes about stuff that I don't even know if it makes sense to you. But regardless, what it has done for me as a coach is that, that it's given me a framework for seeing the world that is not bound by the current structure of the framework, meaning that it's constantly adapting. And what it allows me to do is to automate my process, meaning I don't even have to think. I'm simply reacting. And the beauty of that is that when I'm reacting, reflexively just showing up and uh, leaning on this framework that I've developed internally, I now can add speed. And that speed allowing me to produce more. And the beauty of this is that every once in a while, that speed comes with some speed bumps. There's some restraint that I start to experience, some kind of resistance, some friction. And that's where I have a chance to reassess. And sometimes what I have to do is I have to simplify. I have to delete certain things. Or now I have to reframe. And why is this interesting? Well, this is interesting because now as a coach, I too, just like the athletes that I'm working with, am living in a constant state of adaptation in a place of mastery. And that is exciting. It's very fulfilling. In addition to this, I've been talking about movement this whole time, but I spend 98, I would say 99% of my time working on lifestyle specifically lifestyle performance, meaning uh, taking a person and allowing them through my coaching to express themselves at a higher level so that they can produce better outcomes. And here I use the same framework, the PMP framework. But now instead of position being a shape in space, position is what is your position in terms of your belief system? What are your thoughts? What are your feelings? What are your needs? That's your, that's your position. What's your position? What's your movement? That's your actions. That's your behaviors. The behaviors your, it, are simply how you express your beliefs, what you're thinking. And your purpose is your intention. And something that has become really clear over the last couple of years for me is that when we can define one's individual purpose, we have a stable line to follow, a stable path, a direction. And when we apply that direction to a mission, now we have efficiency and effectiveness moving in that direction. And where the work comes in is in the actions, meaning the way that one is pursuing the purpose in the direction of completing the mission. And in order for that to be maximized, the internal work, what is happening internally, the thoughts, 
and feelings have to be addressed. And this is where when you begin to address what is happening internally, externally, you start to produce more. You start to produce better. You start to achieve the things that you desire. And and this is where I get really excited because this is the best part about it, is that you are going to surprise yourself with what you are creating. In other words, the personal development, the personal work, the self-mastery, that which is happening internally, when you start to express it in your own unique way, you start to not only produce more than you thought you could produce, but you produce something that you had never even uh, had a chance to uh, imagine. Maybe you sensed it, but you had never been able to see it in the way that you have created it. And that is something that is a gift when you get to experience it. And this is something that I've experienced. And maybe uh, any of you listening, if you're coaches, you you may have experienced this too, is that I am technically in the self-help industry, an industry that I have personally been kind of um, disgusted by. <laughs> That's the only word I can find at the moment. I just don't feel like it's my my thing, but I'm in the industry, so it has to be my thing to some degree. And and what I've realized that the practices of self-help are not what I am interested in sharing. Rather, I'm interested in sharing how one can creatively express themselves, whether it's through art or their business or their athletic performance, in a way that um, gives access to the creator, the person pursuing, to the the aspects of self-development that are needed to be uh, highlighted and worked on in whatever stage of development the creative process is in. So for me as a coach, I am also thinking, I am always thinking craft first. What are you creating? Tell me what you're creating. The second thing I'm thinking about is how are you creating it? What does your pursuit for creating that which you're producing, what does that look like? In other words, how are you behaving? How are you moving? How are you acting? What are your habits? And then how are you communicating this? How are you expressing this? Whether it's in written form, uh, verbal communication, how are you showcasing this? And then behind that is how is that being experienced internally? And this being the reflexive state. When we can take that which is our outwardly expression, our craft, and then allow it to become a mirror for what's happening internally, now we're getting access to the internal development without becoming trapped in the internal practice, which is something that happens a lot. People that get into self-help books, podcasts, work with people like myself, they can get addicted to the internal practice and the internal process because there's a sense of development that is occurring and that producing a sense of fulfillment. But if it's not able to mechanically transpire outwardly, whether it's through your presence, through the way that you communicate, the way that you express yourself or the way that you're creating, then that internal work, in my opinion, is being wasted. So one of my goals as a coach is to always bring you to the craft, have you get access to what is happening internally, and then once we're um, inside, crack 
open the inside and allow that to pour over into what's happening outside. Now, that sounds very esoteric and abstract and maybe just uh, speaking in analogies doesn't make sense. But I think that's the, the convoluted nature of personal development. And that's what I'm very excited about when thinking about my craft as a coach. And maybe as I was speaking today, some of that which I shared resonated. If you are curious about this, um, I'm going to plug my book, Freestyle, which is available everywhere, uh, but you can find it on Amazon. That's the best way to find it. And specifically, I would encourage you to read part one of the book. So uh, it's divided in part in three parts. So read part one. And for the um, lifestyle coaching side of things that I, I just shared a little bit about, I want you to notice that if you are a sports coach, an athletic coach, somebody who coaches movement, you're also a life coach. You're a lifestyle coach. You are a part therapist. And it behooves you to become competent in the inner workings of the human mind and experience to assist those that you are working with in reaching new levels because it's there where I believe the magic happens. All right. Yeah, that was uh, today's episode, How I Coach. Hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea of how I think about coaching and where some of my ways of expressing my coaching come from. And if it resonated with you, I would love to hear from you. So please send me a message. Uh, let me know what you thought. And we will continue the, although right now, one-way conversation, the conversation through some of these episodes. And I have a few guests lined up, and I can't wait to share what they uh, have in store because I believe it's going to bring a lot of value to you. So that being said, much love, everybody. Thank you for being here. And uh, we'll see you next time. Peace, everyone. This is the Freestyle Way.